Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Douglas R. Skopp, that's S-K-O-P-P as in Paul, the author of Shadows Walking, a novel about Nazi Germany. Shadows Walking traces the lives of two fictional German doctors, childhood friends, one Protestant, one Jewish, in a series of flashbacks that extend from not long after the end of World War I through the Nuremberg Trials of 1946. It explores the mental and emotional shifts that allowed doctors who had sworn the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm, to abandon their principles or justify their choices in such a way that they were able to participate in the horrifying medical experiments conducted on concentration camp prisoners under the Third Reich. In doing so, it complements my earlier interview with Julius Wachtel by again asking what role ordinary citizens play in the construction and maintenance of a totalitarian system and to what extent any of us, under the right combination of circumstances, might choose to silence our consciences in support of a cause. When Shadows Walking opens, Johann Brenner, the Nazi doctor, is trying to escape from occupied Berlin. Chapter 1, 1946, Trials Johann Brenner climbed inside the first boxcar he could find in Berlin's train yards as the city was falling to the Russians. When the train headed south toward Nuremberg, he cursed his luck. But he knew it could have gone east, deeper into the territory held by the Soviets, or into Russia itself. He knew that the war would soon end, if only the train were not bombed before he could jump off. His false papers afforded him a new identity, a new life, He wanted to go west, to Karlsruhe, where he hoped to find his wife. He was comforted by his belief that she had fled their apartment in Nuremberg to live with her sister in the Rhineland. He missed her, but their separation helped him forget what he wanted to forget. As the train neared Nuremberg, he jumped. American troops captured him within minutes. They brought him to a DP camp outside the city and assigned him and other displaced persons to one of the reconstruction crews at Nuremberg's Palace of Justice. But his war wounds, a leg injury resulting in an awkward limp from the First World War, and a scarred right hand which he concealed with a glove from the second, made him unfit for hard labor. Instead, he worked as a cleaner inside the courthouse. He followed orders, did what he was told, and the Americans were satisfied. When the courthouse repairs were completed, Johann Brenner, now known as Heinrich Westermann, was selected to be the head custodian in Nuremberg's Palace of Justice. He liked his title. He assigned himself the night shift, 11 to 7. He appreciated the quiet. In the vast building, he alone was awake. He had a bunk, a small desk, and a cupboard under the stairs in the basement. He took his meals during the work week in the building's cafeteria. On weekends, he lined up at the nearby soup kitchen. Supervising the others, he felt responsible, even a bit important. Sometimes he hummed softly as he walked up and down the stairs. He alone knew that he had been a doctor at Auschwitz. And now to tell us what happens next to Johann and his friend Philip, here is Douglas Skop. Hi, Doug. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us today. I thank you very much for putting me uh, on and having this opportunity. Uh, great. We're going to talk about your novel, Shadows Walking, which I enjoyed very much, uh, which is a study of um, Nazi Germany and, in a sense, uh, how it came to be, the, the many decisions that were made by ordinary people that allowed um, the Nazi state to take power and hold power uh, until the war. So um, I would like to begin, as I usually do, by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, what was your training? What got you interested in the subject? How did you come to write this novel? Um, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, my mother and uh, father had divorced fairly early in my life, six months early into my life. And so my grandparents raised me uh, with my mother's 
helped, and um, they were uh, Eastern European Jews who came to this country in the turn of the century and um, still preserved uh, their religious traditions. And uh, so I grew up in a Jewish household um, in Los Angeles. My grandfather had been a cobbler, and neither my grandparents could read or write. Um, I um, helped uh, by reading them the newspapers and uh, taking my grandparents to the synagogue. Um, and um, when it came time for me to go to college, I wanted to leave California, and so I applied to uh, the farthest college away I could think of, and that was Dartmouth in New Hampshire. Um, and um, my grandparents had been uh, very much affected by uh, World War II and the Holocaust. Some of the family, uh, some 30 people, hadn't managed to escape and were killed in the Nazi Holocaust. Um, and uh, my grandparents, understandably, um, in my childhood, could only speak about the evil Germans. Um, I was born in 1941 uh, as we went to war. Um, but I somehow knew that not everybody in every country was evil and not everybody in every country or people were good. And uh, so I uh, developed a childhood pattern of questioning authority and challenging authority. And um, when I went to Dartmouth, I came into the influence of uh, a German professor who himself had fled Nazi Germany uh, as a Jew. Uh, and um, who had taught at Dartmouth until retiring. And I met him uh, while working on a farm in Vermont, um, and he encouraged me to go to Germany and um, with books that he had written in German, which I was determined to read, uh, but had enrolled in German one classes and couldn't very well. I could find out where the, how the train station was, but I couldn't find out how to read philosophy. And so I went to Germany and dropped out of college and lived in Germany for a fair while. I uh, attended the university there eventually after I learned German and um, learned quite quickly that not every German had supported the war or been a Nazi, that many, including the family I lived with, uh, had very courageously defended Jews and uh, themselves had gone to concentration camp. So I came back to... Um, the United States, impressed by what I had seen in Germany, which was then just 15 years after the war, recovering from the war, its brutality, its cruelty, its destruction, and realized that if it could have happened in Germany, the war uh, could have happened in the United States, too. Um, that the German citizenry had been uh, ex excellent in all of its achievements, uh, its Nobel Prize winners, its musicians, its philosophers, and yet a war had broken out and devastated the country. I feared that the same thing would happen in the United States, and so I came back determined to teach German history uh, to college-age students and um, went on for my Ph.D. after Dartmouth and uh, focused on German history, uh, German on education, on German education, and so came to the State University of New York at Plattsburgh, where I remained for most of my career, uh, teaching and uh, working with students and colleagues on helping them understand um, how something like the war in Germany could happen elsewhere. That, and you were at Plattsburgh. You were retired as a distinguished professor of history, as I understand. Uh, so you must have written a fair number of academic works, but you decided in this case to write a novel. Uh, how did that come about? Um, my academic work uh, consisted of studies of the education of uh, prominent physicians, engineers, uh, mathematicians, school teachers, how they ultimately used their education to build their careers and uh, gain professional authority and also serve political interests. Um, but I knew from all those scholarly works that uh, my own uh, interest in how an individual uh, physician, in this case, um, would become uh, a Nazi 
wasn't really resolved. Um, I, in the archives, found uh, ample evidence for patterns of uh, behavior, but no individual uh, studies of individual um, values and ideas and um, aspirations and ambitions. And I was determined to write a novel uh, in which uh, I could review and and explore some of those ideas. I wanted to get into the head of a German doctor. I had taught enough history and knew that students came alive when I used fiction in my courses. So I used All Quiet Western Front, for example, um, and helped students think about what had happened in the head of the Germans uh, who uh, were in that war. Um, but I wanted to write something more intimate and more personal, and so I chose to write a novel. I also was concerned about all the scholarly work that had been done on Nazi medicine. Uh, when I was in Germany as a Fulbright scholar, uh, some of these works already began to come come out, and I knew that my work wouldn't be very much more than an amplification of theirs. I wanted to do something entirely original. And so in 1986, when I returned to the United States, I began working on the novel that ultimately um, became Shadows Walking, uh, which was published in 2010. So it took me 25 years or so to, to write it. Right, and that was the next point I wanted to get to. Once you decided to write a novel, how did you... That It's quite a shift, I think, probably more than certainly than most historians realize and probably even most of the general public realize how much of a shift it is to go from writing academic history to writing historical fiction. Yeah, I had been trained as a historian, so I was only allowed to say uh, what I could actually find in the document, so to speak, or infer from the document. Uh, what would be the fact of uh, the story. But in the case of the novel, I could invent, I could create, I could be imaginative to the extent that uh, uh, the documents allowed and then move beyond that. I'd always wanted to write fiction as a college student. I intended to major in history, in English, but instead majored in history. And uh, so this was a blend that I could um, affect in my retirement, so in my uh, final years of uh, my teaching career, and then in my retirement, I uh, focused more and more on creating the novel. I read many fictional authors. Dickens impresses me still with all of his imagination and his capacity to weave a story together in intensity. Uh, I read a lot of Russian novelists. I read um, Tolkien. I read, um, well, uh, just about anyone I could read who had managed to weave a story together that I was very intricate and related to somehow historical events. Um, and that helped me enormously. That's great. So did you work with other writers, or did you just keep revising it on your own until you were happy with it? Well, I went through 11 different drafts, um, and uh, in the writing club that I have here in Plattsburgh that uh, helped me, uh, many of the, of the members of the club uh, watched each different draft and watched me stumble through, through them all, and I, in turn, helped them and learned from them. Um, uh, one of my uh, best uh, bits of advice came from a fellow historian who teaches at Berkeley, Peggy Anderson. She taught at Berkeley. Berkeley, Margaret Anderson, and she wrote a 40-page commentary on my, uh, I think, 10th draft, and um, uh, had historical uh, tips and characterizations and uh, insights that could uh, be used, and so I went back to square one and then rewrote the entire novel based upon her uh, commentary. She's, in many ways, uh, an invaluable critic. And um, uh, I guess in some other ways, I, I lived the story as best I could. Uh, when um, I wanted to immerse myself in the archives, um, I did so with such intensity that I found myself uh, repelled and revolted and disgusted by the events uh, that the archives revealed. And um, then I'd have to pull myself back out of that and uh, go back to writing, uh, and in each case, 
uh, had to return to the archives to confirm my evidence and restore my uh, sense of perspective. And uh, so it was a turbulent event, series of events in my life. Um, nothing in the story couldn't have happened the way I described it or didn't happen the way I've described it. Uh, it's based firmly on historical archival material. I worked extensively during my Fulbright year uh, on uh, Nazi medicine. I went to Germany with the project of uh, researching medical ethics and practices in Germany from 1880 to 1945 and wrote a scholarly piece about that and then uh, found a way to uh, fictionalize the characters but keep it historically accurate. I think uh, writing groups are wonderful if you get the right one. Uh, I know mine has been invaluable uh, because you get really hands-on advice that's directed at your particular work. And if you keep it going long enough, then people become almost as invested in your own in your story as, as you are, which is wonderful. Yeah, and in, in my case, the writing group was some 20 years long uh, before... I finished the project. Uh, many other books were produced in the writing club before mine was produced. Uh, and some um, excellent uh, people uh, drifted in and out of the writing group during the time I was there. But it reads uh, very well. It, 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 I mean, the effort that you put into it really shows. I think a lot of people release their works too soon, and they don't really do themselves a favor. Now that I think a 13th draft, a 12th draft would be even even better. I've had different ideas about the story. There's another character I should have included. I should have made um, uh, the friendship between Philip and Johann. Philip is the Jewish doctor. Johann is the Nazi, uh, ultimately the Nazi doctor, the Protestant German doctor. I, I wanted to make them a little more textured and... Uh, uh, and, and I can see now ways in which I could have improved the book. I don't think anything has ever been written perfectly in any case. So I suppose mine's in, in good standing, but uh, I still think of ways in which I could have improved it. I'm sure there are always... My wife, yeah, my wife is very happy that I've finished it, I'm sure. She uh, was desperate to get out from under the shadow of my working under... Uh, the stress of the book. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are always ways things can be improved, and each each draft and each novel uh, gets a little bit better. You've uh, set us up beautifully now to move into talking about the novel itself. Um, it's not complicated to follow while reading, but it may be a bit hard for readers to follow if we talk about it in a linear kind of way on the air. So. I wanted to note up front that the entire story is framed by a letter that Johann Brunner is writing to his wife, Helga, trying to explain what he's done since he saw her last, in part because he's been hanging out in Nuremberg, where she lives, for several months and perhaps even a year. I'm sorry if my memory is not perfect, but he then runs into her by accident at one of the trials being held in Nuremberg. And she's, of course, furious because he's been in this, to realize that he's been in the city all this time and he hasn't said anything to her or contacted to her, contacted her in any way. And so he's trying to explain why. And each time he writes a paragraph on this letter that opens up a series of chapters that describe the events that he's now compressed into two or three sentences in order to get across to her what he's been doing without, of course, you know, spending... He, he can't give her the whole book that is Shadows Walking, so he gives her these little extracts. Um, and the book begins and ends in 1946 with these flashbacks into the past, which makes sense as you read through and read the portion from the letter. Uh, so tell us... Explain as much of the plot as you would like readers to know, and, and I will interject the occasional question just to to keep things going. But I don't want to take it past the point. You know, a novel functions in part because readers want to know what's going to happen in the end. So I don't want to take it past the part where you uh, will keep them interested in finding out what the end of the story is, and I'm going to let you decide where that is. Okay, that's very good. 
uh, first of all, you, you said, and I appreciate very much your saying that you enjoyed the book, but I don't think it's an enjoyable book in the sense that it's a, uh, a happy story. It's a no, I enjoyed the writing story. of the book. <laughs> I enjoyed the story, but the, the book, the topic of the book is tough going, I will admit. <laughs> uh, it was painful to write, uh, and I'm sure it's painful to read. Um, I, I intended to weave uh, the story of two physicians uh, into uh, their lives as they experienced the Nazi state. And so one is a Jewish physician, a German uh, Jew, who, um, who has the childhood in a Bavarian village, uh, shares his childhood experiences and his friendships with the, another boy in the village who becomes uh, a doctor as well, uh, that is the German Protestant, together a German Jew and a German Protestant in a Catholic German village probably had much in common, and so they share their experiences as, so to speak, outsiders amongst the Catholics in the village uh, in Bavaria, and uh, they swear an oath to each other to be blood brothers. And their story is intertwined, much like the snakes on the staff of the medical a symbol um, that uh, uh, represents the medical profession. And their story unfolds um, as uh, Johann is at uh, the Nuremberg trial of doctors. He's a janitor in the courthouse where the trial unfolds through um, an accident of his escaping from Berlin. Uh, and um, uh, there in the audience watching the trial is his wife, his estranged wife with whom he's had no contact, Helga. And uh, as they meet after one of the sessions of the trial, she is exasperated and angry with him for not seeking her out and yet having been in Nuremberg all the while. Uh, and um, he decides to write her a letter and that letter then becomes uh, the theme-setting paragraph for each of the chapters. So in Chapter 2, for example, he writes, Dearest Helga, I fear I've lost my soul, and now you, for too long, fear has shamed me into silence. Now I must tell you what I've seen, what I've done, what I know others have done, why I thought what I was doing was so much good, and instead did so much harm. I don't know where it all began. Was it in Munich while I was still studying medicine when I first heard with my own ears the hissing hatred that brought this ruin down upon us? Was it in the First World War? Was it still after that? Oh, my beloved, even if, I, even if it all began before we met, I must find the place and the time when I chose, when we Germans chose our terrible future. I remember shadows and in those shadows, spiders hatched. Venomous terrors were born. I know I was one. And so, as you said, the, the themes of each chapter are introduced by the chapters themselves. The, the titles of the chapters are taken from each uh, segment of the letter. So this chapter, chapter two, is titled Spiders Hatched. And it tells the story of Johann and then Philip as they experience uh, World War I, uh, the aftermath, the crisis of the economy and political uncertainty, the rise to Hitler's, of Hitler's party in power, and um, how Johann at first uh, thinks about uh, designing uh, a future within Nazi Germany for himself, in which he'll have a heroic role, one that he finds encouraged by the Nazis, uh, and uh, he decides to join the party, while Philip uh, feels the pain and anguish and uh, pressures of the party, which excludes him from his practice. And together, the two men uh, weave their paths in and out of the regime uh, and ultimately uh, encounter each other for the last time at Auschwitz. Uh, meanwhile, Johann has involved himself in uh, the eugenics movement uh, has begun to sterilize children of mixed-race parentage born to German women mostly 
um, at the end of uh, World War One, and uh, Philip has been excluded from practice by Nazi strictures and uh, policies, and the racial laws of the uh, regime in 1935 cause him even further pain and anguish. Um, it's a story in which I tried to get into the heads of the two physicians, the, the German doctor, Johann, and uh, the Jewish-German, uh, Philip, and in both cases tried to reveal how their choices ultimately uh, led to their destinies. Um, it's a book about choices and how each of us have the capacity, if we think enough about what we are able to do, and making those choices might be able to avert our destinies and shape them in a different way. One of the things I particularly liked about the book is that, as you say, it's about choices, and but not exactly the same kinds of choices, because Philip is, in a sense, he is responding to choices that are made for him, because he's Jewish, and for no other reason. And so his only real choice is whether to stay or go. But Johann is a very interesting character, because he is not really comfortable with all of the Nazi line. Um, and I hope you could talk to us a little bit more about what motivates him, because in some ways he's drawn to Nazi ideology. As you say, he participates in the sterilization program, the eugenics program, and yet he's never completely able to forget his childhood um, friendship with Philip. He doesn't really buy into the anti-Semitic ide ideology of Nazism. Not, not entirely, and not, not wholeheartedly. In any case, um, he, he's turbulent and 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 conflicted, and in fact a very weak character, insofar as he lets himself be used ultimately by the state. But his hesitancy and his um, resistance, if I can call it that, to do so at the outset, uh, makes him, I think, a relatively typical. Uh, physician, uh, Nazi physician, and makes him a typical uh, member of the Nazi party. Um, the power of the state to overwhelm them uh, is um, evident for me, at least in his generation. Now, the younger generation, his son, uh, Paul Otto, uh, is much more willing to become a Nazi. He's, in fact, indoctrinated from a, an early on, early age. Um, but Johann is much more um, troubled by the arrogance of the party, by the uh, cruelty uh, that he sees it expressing, uh, by the um, hostility towards the Jews, uh, by the ambivalence uh, that's in his own mind about whether it's the right thing to do or not. I had him joining and then not joining the Nazi party three or four times, uh, which was typical of uh, many of the physicians of the era. Um, and in fact is documentable. Um, but uh, in the end decides that in, in his interest and in the profession's interest uh, to best serve the state. And uh, so he wholeheartedly, ultimately, decides to join. Um, but it's uh, a painful choice. And um, I have to say, whenever I was writing the character of Johann, I found myself revolted by what he was doing and I had to surface and come back to uh, my own world and my own life and then uh, plunge back again into the archives and re-dedicated myself to the story. It was a, a terribly um, painful experience. You mentioned that before, that, that you were revolted by the archives and you were revolted by the character of Johann, and I can certainly understand that because uh, in my non-fiction writing life, I spent a lot of time reading about Nazi atrocities, much more time than I would like um, because it's part of my work. Yeah. And it is extremely, I mean, to realize that human beings are capable of that kind of cruelty towards one another is a horrifying thing, and yet you were able to work through that. You were able to keep going, and this project must have meant a great deal to you. Yeah, it was my life's work, I think, in a way, from my childhood on to 
uh, now into retirement, and um, I think I think in some ways this was the project I needed to do throughout my entire life to come to grips with who I could be, what choices I might make, how I, in fact, uh, might have been a Nazi doctor, how only the barbed wire separated me from one life or the other, uh, how uh, in German history we could have a Mozart and a Mengele uh, at the same time, uh, realizing each man had aspirations and fears, uh, and some uh, managed to serve uh, their uh, better instincts, and others managed to uh, succumb to their worst instincts. I think, in fact, that's what the story is about, uh, how each of us must find a way in which we can serve our better instincts and uh, avoid our worst ones. Um, and uh, not having uh, actually lived in the Holocaust and knowing what I would have done, I can only guess that I would have wanted to be uh, a Philip rather than a Johann as a doctor. Mm-hmm. But but um, I asked my students in each case how they would have wanted to be, which side of the concentration camp wires they would have wanted to be on, and um, um, of course none of us can really know until we're faced with that judgment. But I think the test is trying to think ourselves into it and then finding the answer as best we can and hope that we will be the person we expect to be rather than one who's uh, tempted by the evil of the era. Yes, I think we all have a secret uh, image that we're going to be, say, Solzhenitsyn, and instead most of us are the people in line (laughs) queuing for onions, you know. Yeah, and and so I I wish I had put into the story a character, um, Philip uh, uh, portrays, a little bit of the resistance movement in that he uh, buys postcards with Hitler's face uh, portrayed on them and uh, burns them in secret in the alleys but um, of Berlin. But I, I, uh, I wish I had drawn a, a sharper image of a resistance character and uh, made a, a more um, uh, enviable and noble um, a person uh, who made a greater sacrifice than even Philip was able to make. Um, many of the resistance movements uh, have uh, such characters, but most of the Germans who chose resistance, for example, I think of my mother-in-law, whose uh, life as a shopkeeper was a relatively insignificant one, but every day on Hitler's, every year on Hitler's birthday, she'd put Hitler's picture into the show window of her store upside down until she'd be told by the local block leader, Frau Schaut, what happened? You put the picture of the leader in, in uh, the window upside down, and she'd say, oh, 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 I'm so sorry, it must have been a mistake. And she'd turn it back the other way. Um, and that would be her feeble effort at a resistance movement. She didn't dare do anything different. Her daughter, my wife, was just a small child at the time. Her husband had been killed in the war, and uh, that was as much as she dared do to survive as long as she could. That incident made it into the book, as I recall. Yes, it it did. And indeed, many of the stories of my experiences in Germany, uh, I lived there a long while. I uh, studied there. I I had my Fulbright year there. I talked with many healthcare professionals from the era. I talked with many victims of the era. I talked with Nazi doctors as best I could. Um, a lot of the book is woven together from that historical evidence. Um, well, I suppose a resistance character would have been an interesting addition, but I have to tell you that, first of all, that story has already been done, and secondly, I think a resistance character might be too one-sided. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the book and which really does make it, in a way, shadows walking is that all of the characters are somewhat morally ambiguous. Some are more 
so than others. Johann is probably the most, uh, not least because he's the main protagonist. But even Philip plays around in, early on with the idea of racially based medicine. He's drawn to that theory, which was quite prevalent in Europe at the time. Yes, exactly. It was taught in all the medical schools of the Western world, not just in Germany, but in the United States. Racial laws were already in place in the United States before the Nazi powers came, the Nazi state came into being. A Nazi delegation came to the United States and studied the, the eugenics movement here and envied the laws that were in place in Kansas and in Vermont and in um, the southern states. Um, the eugenics movement was uh, part and parcel of 20th century medical education. Um, one of the things I think we should mention is that Philip has a German wife. I mean, they're both German, but she's a Protestant wife. And um, and also Johann's wife is much less, she's actually quite opposed to his joining the Nazi party. Yes, so, and in fact, the women of the story are the heroic figures who see through the politics of the era and through the maniacal uh, wishes of the Nazi party and um, uh, have a better judgment, but who, as women, weren't uh, honored for their political views uh, as much as a man would be, and as a result, um, their views are uh, disputed or are denied. Um, uh, Helga, in particular, uh, would have uh, been much more tolerant and, and even uh, willing to appreciate Jews. Uh, but for, for Johann's uh, disdain of them, um, the, the women in the story, uh, Johann's mother, Johann's wife, Philip's wife, Christine, who's a Christian, and who stands up for Johann, or for Philip at uh, the... Rosenstrasse protest and actually uh, champions um, uh, the, uh, the movement to free her husband and many other Jews who had been taken to the Jewish Community Center in Berlin uh, in a gesture of defiance of the regime. Uh, they are the heroic figures of the story. And there are also characters in the story, Christian characters, who uh, protect Christine and Philip at certain points in the story. Yes, indeed. Uh, not all the Germans, as I said, uh, were uh, monsters and, and Nazis. Uh, many of the of the common citizenry uh, knew uh, Jews, did what was possible to help them, uh, and uh, were in fact uh, quite heroic. Uh, when I first went to Germany, I lived on a farm in southern. Germany in Lake Constance, and the owner of the farm uh, was himself uh, incarcerated for having uh, liberated uh, uh, Jews. He, he and his family made uh, uniforms for uh, Jews who came to the farm and uh, swam through uh, Lake Constance and uh, landed in, in uh, Switzerland and then put on these uniforms and uh, escaped that way. Um, uh, he's one of the righteous Gentiles, uh, and uh, he, in fact, was one who the German professor I knew at Dartmouth sent me to live with, and um, where I learned my German. Christine also wants Philip to leave. She urges him repeatedly to leave Germany, and yet he won't leave. Yes, and in fact, he says several times, uh, he's a German like anyone else. Uh, why would he want to leave his homeland? Why should he? Why must he? Uh, just because the regime asks him uh, to defer to its will and wishes, uh, he is in no way uh, any less a citizen. Uh, and as a result, uh, he stays too long and uh, is unable to escape. Um, while many of his associates, uh, Jewish colleagues, do leave and uh, manage to escape. And in fact, Johann knows um, uh, some of these who leave. And one of Philip's closest associates, a woman named Louise, the doctor, um, manages to go to Palestine at the time uh, and urges uh, Philip to leave as well. One of the 
the elements of that is that Philip doesn't leave in part because he can't imagine how bad it's going to become. And I think that that's a, a point that's really worth making. You know, uh, it's easy to look back now and say, well, you know, the philosophy was there and uh, Hitler was, the, you know, the, these restrictions incre- increasingly became stricter. And yet it would have been difficult, I think, if you were living at the time to imagine anything as awful as the final solution turned out to be. Exactly. Um, and in fact, um, I, I would I would applaud those Jews who thought they could stay and change the system as long as they stayed, um, except that they were doomed mm-hmm. um, by the tyranny of the state. Uh, but few could realize how terrible it would become. I mean, the concentration camps were built as soon as Hitler came to power, and it was known that, uh, I mean, children were told uh, by their parents, you better be a good child or else you'll be sent to a concentration camp as soon as came to power. Uh, but no one really knew what was going on in those concentration camps at Dachau or uh, in Buchenwald. Uh, and it was only later that the, the truth seeped out. Uh, it became known to the Western world in 1942. Uh, but until then, uh, one couldn't really imagine uh, that it was anything more than a relocation camp, a, a, a distant place where Jews would be sent for resettlement, but uh, would be treated with every respect that uh, they were due within the state that despised them. Uh, the British had built concentration camps in the Boer War. Uh, we had a concentration camp of a kind for the Japanese Americans in our war. Uh, it was thought that nothing serious in the way of a threatening experience would happen. You'd just be moved. Uh, Jews bought tickets on the trains that took them there in many cases. Uh, They took clean sheets. Uh, They took utensils. Here in the library in uh, Plattsburgh State, uh, we have uh, on display two of the spoons brought to Auschwitz in in a shrine, if you will, uh, dedicated to the victims of the Holocaust here at the college. And um, th- those two spoons are taken from a field uh, where there is an acre's worth of discarded cheap metal where uh, the spoons that weren't, weren't able to be melted down into usable material for the war effort uh, were cast away. And uh, one of my colleagues brought them back from Auschwitz, he was given them by a curator at Auschwitz. And now we've made a shrine out of them, and those two spoons represent uh, the desire to endure and survive and uh, be uh, able to have uh, ordinary human experiences in the same way as any other human being would want to have them. Those that were sent to the camps were hopeful in every way of a better existence or at least an existence long enough to endure past the end of the terrible temporary, they thought, regime. Which is tragic. Those, I mean, this, the, those details are tragic. I, I think that's one of the great things about a novel, is as painful as it is, you can get those details in to make people really feel um, the sadness of the experience, the horror. Uh, and I... Uh, I invested a lot of energy in making sure that every detail in the story that I could control was uh, authentic. I mean, when I say the park bench, uh, they saw the sun setting over the church tower on the park bench at 5 o'clock in the evening. I know that the weather was good enough for them to see the sun setting over that park bench where that faced east in the park. Um, um I, I, I obsessed with the details of the story. In fact, in some ways, I escaped the story by obsessing into the details. I, you know, there's a train schedule that uh, works. The uh, the food, the the smells, the the uh, atmosphere, uh, the weather, the the train ride itself. Uh, all of those are all. Um, based upon actual historical facts. As I say, there's nothing in the story that 
didn't happen or couldn't have happened exactly as I've described That's the so historian. <laughs> yeah. And in some ways, I was escaping the story by mm-hmm. finding those details. I mean, the, the actual story with the archival base of the atrocities and the uh, sterilizations of the children. Um, I mean, I have um, the, the, the stories of those children in the in the novel um, are based upon actual photographs of the children that were publicized at the time um, of uh, a little child wearing a sailor suit, mixed race child wearing a sailor suit. Uh, I describe him uh, vividly in the story as best I can, but every time I tried to find the details, I was drawn back into the story. The hardest part about writing it was being Johann and finding myself doing the things that he did. And then I'd have to surface and I'd take a break and come away and I'd listen to Mozart or I'd do some knitting or I'd play with my dog. And then, um, and then I'd go back into the archives and reread what Johann had done and immerse myself in the actual events of the story. And as long as I could stand it, I'd be be Johan again, and then I'd overwhelm myself and come back out of it. Let's talk a little more about Johan. You mentioned his son, Paul Adolf, who was initiated young into the Hitlerjugend in part um, through school. Uh, but he also has a daughter, and the daughter and the daughter's fate, I think, are particularly linked to... A, I don't know that they drive his decision to get involved in the eugenics program exactly, but they, it, her death, uh, her illness and death are an important part in his transformation, I think we could say. Yes, I agree. Um, his daughter's name is Greta, and she uh, suffers from polio, and she's paralyzed and ultimately uh, dies. Um, and um, he's powerless to stop her illness and cure her and uh, realizes um, uh, that that's a failing and a flaw in his own character that he uh, had uh, difficulty in overcoming and he joins the Nazi party in part to uh, find his powers again Uh, but ultimately uh, I guess the only way to say it is uh, tortures similar children um, for their defects um, in uh, the story. Um, he's I, I, he's willing to admit that some of the problem is in his uh, inability to help his daughter be well. Uh, but I don't think he wants to use that as an excuse. Uh, he realizes only later in his letter to Helga, that uh, it, it, it might have been a factor. Uh, but he he's unable to uh, separate himself from his sense of inability and, and powerlessness uh, and realizes that his arrogance as a physician inclined him to want to transcend that failure and um, overcome uh, whatever hesitancies he has to join the Nazi party and be willing to do what the Nazi party is doing to the weak and the infirm and the paralyzed, uh, those living lives without meaning or being useless leaders. Uh, Those were the people that he attacked as a physician, and yet his own daughter was one of those people. Right. I can imagine he must have been a very difficult character. I mean, he's a difficult character to read, frankly, because he's, at the same time, he has this very strong sense of powerlessness, and yet it doesn't give him empathy, really, with the victims, except for his own daughter. And so it's almost like he's compensating for his powerlessness by attaching himself to this violent political power, and then he justifies his participation by saying, well, he's helping the race or he's helping humanity and, and therefore he's not violating his medical oath. 
Yeah, yeah. The the, the Hippocratic oath is a very uh, disturbing aspect of the story. He violates the Hippocratic oath from the get-go. Um, he is uh, unable to see the principle, the first principle of the Hippocratic oath. Uh, first, do no harm. And he had sworn that oath when he was in medical school. But now he's uh, distorted the oath, and the Nazi Party medical community uh, did uh, exactly the same thing. They saw do no harm to the folk rather than to the patient individually. And so he realizes only too late that he has violated his oath and uh, chosen to do no harm to the folk as a patient, if you will, uh, which now needs to be purged of all of its weaknesses and flaws in the eugenics movement, uh, but uh, realizes that his lack of compassion and failure to realize uh, that uh, each individual patient is a human being is uh, what has really brought him over the edge and into the brutality that he's done. And it seems to me that that's the crucial difference between him and Philip, because when Philip is in, is it Heidelberg? Um, during an early internship, while he's still, he's not fully credentialed, but he's already gotten out of medical school, Philip is in a situation where um, his superior insists on um, punishing a child, basically, by sending him to a mental institution, even though the child is not mentally ill. And yeah. Philip rebels. He refuses. He leaves the, the city and, and yeah. abandons that job. That's the difference yeah. between the two of them. Yes, exactly. And Philip shows compassion and and uh, concern and uh, patience with the mother and of the child and uh, an understanding. And uh, Johann uh, sees the child only. Johann would see another child as uh, a member of the folk, either healthy or unhealthy and would regard it as does the doctor who supervises Philip uh, as uh, not a wholesome uh, element in the folks' uh, eugenics period. Uh, period. Um, this, this is um, a turning point in the story, if you wish. The doctor, uh, by the way, is an actual figure. Many of the characters in the story are actual figures. The doctor under whom Philip studies at Freiburg, not Heidelberg, but Freiburg, is an actual figure. His name is Dr. Hoche, uh, and he, together with a lawyer, write a book uh, called The Permission to Destroy Life Not Worth Living. Uh, that book comes out in 1920. It's a small book, and it becomes a seminal study for all of the medical profession uh, in which it, it allows the uh, physician to take steps to destroy lives not worth living. The term is taken directly from the book. Uh, also, the same book has this, the term useless eaters. And after World War I, uh, Germany was faced with a declining birth rate and uh, uh, saw its needs to uh, uh, accept uh, stringent methods to uh, perfect and purify itself uh, for uh, a future that it expected for itself and uh, thought itself uh, able to um, generate a medical philosophy that would, in fact, help all of humankind in the same way that animals had been bred to be better animals and dogs had been bred to be pedigreed and so on, thoroughbred horses and the like. These would make better human beings. And so the eugenics movement involves itself in this negative uh, punishing uh, of those living not lives not worth living or uh, defective in some way or another in the eyes of the, the authorities. And um, Hoche uh, advocates this policy right on through uh, into uh, his later life. But Philip resents it and rejects it and uh, ultimately uh, is uh, a victim of it. Um, I'm glad that you brought that up because one of the things I want to mention as we wind up the interview is that um, I understand that you have available on your website, uh, www.shadowswalking, as one word, .com, um, 70 mini-essays in PDF format for people who would like to learn more about the individuals and the places that you describe in your novel. 
yes, there's um, a series of uh, uh, persons, places, incidents, and circumstances uh, that I've written little historical uh, blurbs, I guess, paragraphs or several pages, if you wish, uh, about, uh, and one of them is Hoche, Klauberg, uh, Goebbels, uh, Brandt, a doctor who is the head of the, the Nazi medical establishment at, uh, at the end of the war and brought to trial in Nuremberg, uh, and other circumstances uh, like Jews in Germany and uh, the Kristallnacht and so on. All of those are on my website, and uh, the list is in the back of the book, but it's also on the website as well. And those uh, PDF essays can be accessed directly by going to my website, www.shadowswalking.com. Uh, one word, Shadows Walking. And um, the, the, the reason that I put them there is that I wanted to remain a uh, historian, even while writing a piece of fiction. I wanted to demonstrate the validity of my sources. I wanted to cite them. Uh, I wanted to include uh, them as evidence. I thought at one point of doing uh, a novel with footnotes, and then I thought another time of doing it with uh, parallel pages. On the one side, uh, the novel, and on the other side, a history of the medical profession. Um, I got... Uh, uh, very convoluted uh, projects uh, in my mind. And in the end, these little essays, 70 of them, uh, represent my effort to document what I found to be true and uh, the archival material. They also include bibliographic essays that uh, would provide further reading on, I think, six different major subjects, such as Jews in Germany and you know, World Wars and uh, uh, Nazi uh, government and policies, etc. And are these also the characters who became the basis of Johann and Philip? Uh, Johann is based on uh, three or so Nazi doctors, one of whom is the doctor he serves, who was actual uh, person at the at the uh, camp in Auschwitz. Um, that's Dr. Schumann, uh, who supervises the X-ray sterilizations of men uh, in uh, the camp. He's an Air Force officer and uh, is an actual figure. Horst Schumann uh, escapes Germany after the war, goes to Africa with his wife, sets up a jungle clinic uh, in uh, Uganda, uh, is protected by Idi Amin, and then ultimately uh, a journalist from Germany hears of his uh, jungle uh, hospital goes there and writes a story with photographs about this wonderful German doctor who is serving the natives in Uganda and um, publishes the photographs in Germany in the 1960s. And uh, some of uh, Schumann's actual victims recognize him, uh, men who have been sterilized. And uh, after a while, he is extradited to Germany after Idi Amin's death, is brought back to trial in Munich, uh, and uh, is uh, defended by uh, an attorney who claims that he's too ill to stand trial, and ultimately he dies without having ever gone to trial. Uh, Schumann's one of the doctors on whom Johann is based. Uh, Johann would have gone to Africa if he could have escaped at the end of the war uh, and set up such a clinic. I'm sure he would yeah. have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. That, I mean, that's a great story. You can't really make stuff like that up. No, I didn't make it up. Another doctor in the story who is an actual figure is Klauberg, who uh, sterilizes women brutally and viciously at Auschwitz. Uh, he's a very famous gynecologist before the war, and um, in fact, some of the instruments that he devised are still in use in gynecological experiments. Uh, he specialized in fertilization before the war, helping helping women become fertile, then uh, he turns his attention to making them become infertile after the war or, uh, in, in the, the camp at Auschwitz. Uh, he has an enormous uh, uh, laboratory and uh, clinic in Auschwitz in which he experiments on Jewish women, uh, rendering them sterile and um, brutally doing it. And Johann's invited to visit one of those procedures, which he does, um, uh, Klauberg escapes 
after the war and um, is uh, finally brought to trial and is um, found dead in his cell uh, waiting for trial. Uh, the suspicion is that others who knew more about what he had done and what they had done too as doctors uh, arranged for his murder. So what, I suspect I know the answer to this, but I think it's worth reiterating, even if it is something that you said already. What would you like readers to take away from your novel? How this evil is capable for all of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, How we all, within the context of the world in which we live, uh, could be led to make choices that uh, do harm to others. How compassion and uh, um, awareness of our own instincts uh, must guide us better than we are guided, uh, that every page of history is a bloody page, and that if we are ever to escape ourselves by doing anything that can redeem us, it will be in a recognition of our need for compassion, our uh, love for others, our recognition of the worth of others as much as the worth of ourselves. Uh, those are the lessons. It's a a cautionary tale, I suppose, uh, that I wanted and feel still uh, the need to tell. Um, high school class nearby in Lake Placid, New York, has chosen to read the book. Now there's two different classes have read it, uh, an English literature and social studies class combined, honors class, advanced placement class, with two excellent teachers. And uh, these young students, uh, 16, 17, 18 years old, um, are finding my book accessible, meaningful, are um, seeing things in it that I uh, am hardly aware of ever writing into it. Uh, they've seen the themes of the book very clearly. They're our future, these young people. And um, I must say it's been among the most exhilarating experiences of my teaching career now in my retirement to travel often to the school and um, have them visit the college here where we have a fairly extensive uh, memorial set up for the Holocaust, um, named in honor of my wife and me. And um, these young people are our future, and uh, hoping that they see um, the story for the truths that I have tried to weave into it, the, the evidence of our own need for each other, and our own compassion for each other, and the possible uh, hatred that we might exercise if we aren't aware of that. That's the message I want to impart. That's Um, wonderful that it's being adopted um, in classrooms. Uh, And what about you uh, personally? Where do you go from here? Well, um, I'm enjoying my life to the extent that I can enjoy it. uh, I have cancer, as it turns out, a, a rather unusual form kidney cancer, and I've been chosen to uh, be an ambassador to other patients with kidney cancers and speak uh, with them about uh, our effort to overcome the disease, or at least endure it, as long as we can with quality of life. And so I'll be traveling this weekend to Cambridge to uh, a meeting that organizes uh, us around uh, that theme. Um, I'm writing poetry. I'm Knitting a lot. Uh, I'm having a stained glass panel that's nearing construction and uh, enjoying piecing that together and making it. Um, my wife and I have an interest in our gardens and uh, in our cat. And um, my grandsons, all five of them, keep me hopping whenever I can be involved in their lives. It's a real treat. My eldest son, eldest grandson, is a master chess player already and uh, he beats me every time he can and whenever I can even just uh, out of 200 games gain a a half a victory I'm thrilled so he's 15 years old and uh, these are wonderful wonderful young people in my lives life is good that's great thank you so much for fitting us into your schedule and uh, we wish you all the best I know that it's very tough but um, thank you no, it, life is what we make it, and uh, it's not our um, it's not events, but our attitude toward them that we can control. So, I'm being given a card that I didn't ask for in my hand, but I'm 
doing my best with it. And uh, I'm grateful for every opportunity I have to, to be influenced by others and to help them with whatever I can show them as true. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Carolyn. I appreciate very much this opportunity. It's been a wonderful experience for me. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Goodbye, Doug. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and today I've been talking with Doug Scott, author of Shadows Walking. You can find out more about him and about the people whose stories became the backbone of his novel at www.shadowswalking.com. His book is available for purchase through Amazon.com. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening to new books in historical fiction.